Coxie, Dr. Doug and Ted J.D. on the Tarago bed Fove's Podcast Since we last left the band, the Foves were notching up gigs left, right and centre and had just released their debut EP, This Mood Has Passed. The EP had received Triple J rotation and even sold out its initial 500 press run. One purchaser was David Peacock, future Polydor employee, who remembers catching the band at a gig at La Trobe University. He was doing a PE course at Philip Institute around the corner, but came to check the band's playing at orientation week. One of those um, type of markets or orientation days that I... I went with a couple of mates and, um, you know, they used to have all this set up in, in what was the quadrangle of La Trobe Uni. And in that they had a record store and all that sort of stuff. So um, I think that's when I first came across the Foves. I think it was about 89 from memory. And um, they were playing at the um, orientation. And, uh, yeah, they sort of caught my ear a little bit. I think I'd punched a few cones down in the car and then <laughs> walked back in and there was a band on, you know, and they and they sounded particularly good. Um, very different. I mean, same lineup as All Bar Jack, I guess, but as of today. But, um, you know, I guess around that period, Hunters and Collectors and, you know, Huxton Creepers and those sorts of bands were um, probably influencing a little bit of the music that was coming out because, you know, uh, you know, there were horns <laughs> as well as drums and guitars and bass. Um, Phil was playing the trumpet, you know. So, so having heard, um, I think it was the first track on the on the EP um, when luck ran out. I, I think that was one that caught my attention and um, waltzed on down to the local record store. It was owned by this um, kind of really long ponytailed guy. I think his name was Dave. And he um, he used to be able – he was stocking things back in those days. Like, you know, he had a lot of the go-go stuff in there, mm. a bit of waterfront and, you know, he had imports in and things like that. So it was the only place out here in the northeast that you could probably pick up a, a Stooges record or a Munhuddy record or, you know, I guess even things like things of stone and wood and that sort of stuff. So um, they had plenty of records there. I just uh, – I think I paid twelve ninety nine for it and um, – Walked away with uh, with the EP, which um, which I still have to this very day, uh, which I dug out recently, and it's actually in Supreme Nick, which wow. is um, probably good moving forward. <laughs> and and I forgot it actually had some. Um, they had it in a in a sleeve as well. Um, I think whoever did their printing or, or their text had incredible eyesight because I can't read it today. But um, you know, there's actually. Pictures of the band there as well, you know, which it actually, actually has a picture of Phil on the trumpet, you know, Coxie and then uh, a real gothy-looking Doug. But, um, but yeah, it's good when you when you dig through stuff you've collected over the years and you, and you find a, a, something like that that isn't really available anywhere else at the moment. Uni gigs, though, were just the icing on the cake. The band's first gig of 1990 was at The Tote on the 21st of January, where they pocketed $52. The band were now regularly booked in at the Punters Club and the Evelyn, both on Brunswick Street, Fitzroy. The Foves were not alone in this. A vital little indie scene had started to form around these and other venues in the area. Here's Dave O'Neill again, bass player from Captain Coco singing the praises of one Melbourne venue in particular that played an incredible part in the 90s Melbourne music scene. Well, the punters was great because they loved those kind of pop bands and also the the guy from Fronte was the barman and he was a great guy, um, the guitarist, the songwriter. Oh, what was his name? He, he was great and so he kind of had a big influence, I reckon. Oh, the Punters Club was the best. I mean, we saw so many bands there and stuff. It was the best. The Punters Club plays a central part in that, the beloved Brunswick Street pub that is no longer there. There were so many bands that came out of that little pub. The 
the subcultures in this country are not big enough to have <laughs> big enough scenes for each band. So the great thing is everyone meshes together. In England and America, it's like there's a rockabilly scene, there's a ska scene, but I feel like Australia was always so mixed, which was great. David Williams, Shock Records, recalled how the music scene had moved on from the beer barns of the 1980s and recalls the indie scene that was developing in the area. Yeah, I'm trying to get a real feeling of what the Melbourne live scene was in the late 80s, like way pre-Seattle and so forth. Were there distinct scenes? You got the jangle pop folk sort of thing, or were all the punk remnants still around, but south of the Yarra they weren't in your orbit? Or I just were there a lot of old man pubs that were slowly becoming venues? Uh, no, no. If anything, it had sort of moved on from there because the if you look at the late 70s, early 80s, there were a lot of uh, those outer suburban beer barns, as they're fondly uh, recalled, uh, Village Green <laughs> and venues like that. They, were, they had bands like Hunters and Collectors and they, these acts that had sort of um, become more established. And then I think the the indie scene was more a, a response to that. So it was it was venues it was venues like the Punners Club, the Evelyn. Uh, they were the venues that a lot of the bands were playing. The Foves had now saved enough doll money for another release. They were happy to go with Timbertop and Doug Saunders again, thinking a single would be a good way to keep momentum going but at a lower cost than an EP. Coxie remembers, We were always creatures of habit. We had a working relationship with Timbertop and saw no need to go elsewhere. Although the single was started at Timbertop Studios, hoping to capture some of that mood as past magic, the band had to move to a studio close to the inner city, for reasons we will discuss. So enter the story again, Robbie Rowlands, who still can't remember his exact role in the first two vinyl releases of The Foves. The next single they did, Fireman 451 slash Daughter Abroad. Yeah. Do you remember that one at all? Maybe you were f- there for that one? No, I think that was um, that was still... It was another D- Doug one. Yeah, yeah, and I think that was in that same sort of period where I was aware of what they were doing, but I wasn't... Um, it was I, I really it's so blurry of how we started to to communicate with each other and yeah I, I just don't know I just really don't know how we I think it was purely maybe Andy turning up to the door to chase what's going on with it maybe even calling the studio and talking to me to try and figure out where the masters are or something but you know it was there was a connection that was formed and then we continued from there we did some of that um, timber top again, but then we went to this place called Power Plant Plant in Carlton. Yep. And something was something kept overheating, so he was constantly putting the some part of the recording apparatus into a fridge. Cool it down. And it was just going on all yeah, it was a just torturous pr- process, yeah. Yeah, I remember doing that. We did that in um some studio where the computer thing kept melting down. Um, the, the the hard drive or the processor kept melting down. That I remember put the, them putting it in the fridge to cool it down, and then coming oh, out sorry. and plugging it and recording again. Painful, pr- painful like process. And but this was all two-inch tape, right? Yeah. But it had a computer. It would have been, yeah, it was some some piece of audio equipment that needed to go in the fridge to cool down. The band's live sound mixer, Peter Caridus remembers being of especial help at Power Plant Studios. Again, that was kind of through the middle of the night, so I think there was kind of a cheap rate of getting it through the middle of the night. And, <laughs> and, and we, there was some kind of equipment breakdown as, as well, um, which, which didn't help. Some um, console or other had to be put in the fridge for a few hours. It was the, actually the automation. So, so it was when during, during the mix down, the, the, what, what kind of automates all the faders and, and that, and it was actually run off a floppy disk. And at the time, I was working at a, you know, at a, effectively a computer store because I remember at the time in this recording, um, the guy from who, I don't know, who's the manager of the studio getting really stressed saying, you know, I think they had Tism or someone coming in like that 
following day or following week and he was, he was kind of stressed out that this this desk had broken and, and, and he said, where am I going to get this part in the middle of the night? It's like, oh, hang on. Um, I think I know where I can get one of these. And so I drove for a few hours, you know, out and back and, and came back with this kind of spare part in the middle of the night. So um, <laughs> You're like Mel Evans of the uh, Beatles. Mel Evans yeah. doing these little tricks, yeah. So, yeah, that, that, that only sort of stuck in my, mem- my memory because of what kind of went wrong. Something broke down, I don't know, a part of the console, and they had to put some sort of computer interface in a fridge or something. Well, I know that happened at our, used to happen at Paradise. I was only actually recounting that because you don't, you can't do that anymore. Well, you don't. But there was the standard way to get a computer going again was to um, throw the hard drive in the freezer and then bring it out again. Um, So, oh, look, I wouldn't, you know, there were so many times studios things broke down and you had to go into survival mode um so i wouldn't i wouldn't doubt that that didn't happen at Timbertop um in some way i I can't remember the console actually having automation which is why you would do that but um you know uh, yeah a hard one to remember is it recorded live pretty much or did you have one no sort of record the same way as we did the ep but doug saunders had some problem with there was something he had to keep putting in the freezer because it was just overheating. Something small enough to put in a freezer anyway. Yeah. But it just kept overheating and constantly stopping overheating stopping and, and stopping us, yeah. 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 You don't know what it was. The fiasco. <laughs> well it was small enough to put in a freezer, so I don't know. But it was, was crucial to the recording. <laughs> This would be the last vinyl release of the band until 2019, unless you count the split 45 with the plums in 1994. It was a different time for vinyl recording. In those days of the late 80s, early 90s, when vinyl was still like a a realistic prospect, right? People releasing 7-inch singles and things. You you hear about... Sorry, I'm not an engineer at all. But you hear about in the 60s how there was limits, dynamic limits to what sort of bass you could put in. Is that something like the... You still had to worry about the bass jumping out of the grooves? Had that all been ironed out by the late 80s and the vinyl mastering process? Or did you have to pay a lot more attention to bass then? Well, you know, it was always... All mastering is always a challenge, and even in the digital domain. Um, but it was possibly one of the challenges for the foes. I don't know who mastered their records, but there were very few people who could actually master records well. And MI, oh, I can't even remember his name, the most amazing mastering engineer of EMI. Um, oh, Don Bartley. Don Bartley, Don Bartley. Yes. Yeah, because he um, he devised a summon difference amplifier, which made a big difference to how you could actually EQ a record. But uh, look, you know, look, record in a sense like tape had the capacity to sort a few things out that are possibly a little bit kind of you know not great in the recording mixing process. Um, and so, then again, tape. But you know, look, I suppose the the key to understanding that recording history is a lot of shit got recorded on tape and a lot of shit got released on record. It wasn't the saving grace of in, in any possible way, you know. Um, so, you know, look, but it was apart from releasing cassettes, you know, it was the only other way to release something at that point. And so it was a lot of work to go into putting a record together and getting it out there in some sort of form, but wonderful. But, you know, it was a lot of work. And look, the main thing is they would remove bass from the outside, uh, the the difference, some in some indifference, so that in, in a stereo field, the bass doesn't, yeah, one, jump the needle out of the groove. So it's bass ends up down the center and not on the outside information. But and a few other aspects, but, you know, it's um, like there was an art to it, but it was kind of following some 
pretty basic rules of what you can and can't do. The band evidently thought they had two songs of equal importance to capture on vinyl. Yeah, so that was that was pegged as a double A side, but Fireman Four Five was the much superior song of that. That daughter of Broads is shocking. That is yeah. embarrassing. But I think Fireman, yeah, yeah, I think Fireman's a really good song. I think I always yeah. thought that was a quite a. Yeah. Must have just read Fahrenheit four five. Yeah, yeah. Oh, big time. Yeah, <laughs> it's just it's, oh, it's that, just yeah, yeah. acceleration yeah. with fire continues it's as well. So yeah, like, it's, like, it's so it stands up. undergraduate. I think you could resurrect that song. Which one? Oh, I haven't heard it for a very long time. So. And you've got that break where it's just sort of the bass, and you yeah. that it. And oh, you did, you've done that a few times in the earlier songs. See, he knows early days. He got he he was what in retrospect he was miles ahead of me as a songwriter because he was. Writing, now you were all of our classic, yeah, like songs that were songs were written by Doctor back then, whereas my stuff was just yeah. like, if you, you know, yeah, it was my stuff was also partsy, but that song stands up as a, mm. as, a as a rock song, yeah, yeah rock mm. pop song, but um, yeah, which I think is why I sort of mentioned Charles Atlas as the first time I'd sort of got finally got onto that wavelength of just, just writing a song, you know, stop trying to be so clever. We used to put so many overdubs and oh, okay, yeah. things on the songs. We'd you know we'd just all go in and like yeah. they're putting so much. I got an idea. I got an idea. I got an idea. You would have done yeah. Daughter Abroad live. Everything at that stage. We would have. Yeah. Yeah. Would have yeah that, that would have fallen out of the set this long before Fireman did though, because that was a pretty naff story. Oh, I got here. I think you strung out the ending to make it four minutes, maybe. Did it? Yeah. <laughs> it's a very naff song. Great song. Yeah, oh, that's all off that EP.
So, Daughter Abroad, what's it all about? Well, it's about a daughter travelling overseas. Duh. <laughs> As the Kiwis say, she's doing her OE. Overseas in experience, I think. Those crazy fellas across the ditch. And this daughter, going from the lyrics, seems to have been sent to Spain. But perhaps also Italy, because... Piazza is mentioned and it's a snapshot of another time of course because travel was a different era 30 years ago there was no mobile phones well unless you were really well off I guess certainly there was no instant messaging apps and Wi-Fi and even uh, I I wasn't overseas but from what you read even semi-serious things were best planned by sending a mail because to call up International calls were quite expensive. My sister was in London during the 2005 bombings, and thankfully she was fast asleep at the time, but uh, we could contact her relatively quickly to make sure all was okay through email. Uh, Even, uh, yeah, it was Web 101, Web 1.0 back then, but, um, you know, even those things weren't available in 1990. Uh, A daughter abroad, or maybe it's... A daughter, a broad, a woman. <laughs> Very sexist there. Uh, flash forwarding through to uh, Ride On Woman of Doctors. So the music's relatively straightforward. It starts off with the verse break where the trumpet's playing and then the verses on guitar are quite easy. It's just A, C, D. So daughter abroad, leaving the better off at home, happy. Suddenly that's not the case What is? That's all pretty straightforward And then the chorus is a break first And there's some hand claps that come in Which I always find are delightful But maybe some people think are a bit uh, A bit corny A bit small bandy But um Yeah, it's just G and F I think Like daughter abroad Walks round in sun clouds Absolve your sister Daughter abroad, and the second time it goes da 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 e or e minor j a. There you go. And then there's a bridge, which instead of going a c d, is a more sync is a c e, but a bit more sort of syncopated and quicker. Uh, like dad pays for the trip checking the mail that hasn't been paid in fact it might go a c e and then a quick sort of c or root note quick maybe it's a power chord c or maybe it's just then there's a second part to the chorus which is this funny little two bar like a circus or calliope, maybe like a Sgt. Pepper's type little bit just between E and F where the trumpet's going, um, just a little trill like. Before resolving on that E. So that's pretty, pretty nifty. Just two bars doesn't get in the way. I wonder if this part and the outro uh, I wonder if that's what caused the recording to fuck up or something. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's not too bad. Oh, and at the the end of the third chorus, I think, it does like this little shuffle between, I think, D minor and A. So, D minor and E, sorry. So, crossing that childhood's final shore, that final shore. I'm not sure if it's a D7 or some sort of suspended thing, but it doesn't, it doesn't sound like D the first one. Crossing childhood's fatal shore. It doesn't sound like a F though. Final shore. Anyway, that's it music-wise. The drums are 6-8 or maybe even a 12-8. I always forget what the difference is, but it's got sort of like a triplet feel, so that's pretty cool. And now we come on to discuss the lyrics. So I wonder if Coxie's sister Nicole 
ever went abroad. And that's where he's channeling this from. So daughter abroad, leaving the better off at home happy. Is that because her parents are wealthy? Or is she being a wayward child, so sort of good riddance, send her overseas? Suddenly that's not the case. What is the shadow behind the sweet smile crossing childhood's final shore or fatal? So shadow, who are these shadows? Is it the dangerous foreigners? Is that who the parents are worried about? Is this a taken scenario? Um, The chorus, daughter abroad, walks around in sun clouds. Head in the clouds, maybe she's just naive or she's having fun. O.E.? can't work out the lyrics there's no lyric sheet to this uh single so absolve your sister maybe she's making good on her older sister back home or something or someone's living vicariously through this young daughter abroad and then coxie has some spanish which my wife has said is hola papa hace mucho calor aquí which is hello (laughs) hello dad it's very hot here and uh, Coxie references the Costa del Sol. So he's using, obviously, his uh, Spanish there that he's at uni learning. I wonder if Coxie was inspired to put the Spanish in there because he's going from F to E, so it sort of sounds a bit... a bit flamenco. So he thought, I'll just put some Spanish in there. The Costa del Sol Hola papá, hace mucho calor aquí. Um, daughter abroad, leaving the better off at home happy. Suddenly that's not the case. And then Coxie has those little background vocals, little taglines that he's singing backing vocals, which is good. It's like he's wailing a little bit. Shadow behind the sweet smile. Daughter abroad, leaving her boyfriend to tie up the loose ends. So what are the loose ends? What has she done back home? Is her boyfriend going to join her shortly once he's covered up the murder? Is it her ex-boyfriend? Is it the boyfriend tying up his loose ends, like getting time off work to come over? Or is he making good bad stuff the daughter's done, that his girlfriend's done here? Then it's something something piazza. Couldn't quite work that out. And then Doctor the Diary, there's a book in this someday. <laughs> so maybe many years from now she'll write a book about her her two months over and she'll make it she'll embellish it. A little travelogue Hemingway type thing. Verse again, daughter abroad, suddenly that's not the case. What is that final show whatever that D E thing is? Then the bridge, A-C-E. Dad pays for the trip, checking the mail that hasn't been paid. Culture in a letter of Daddy Raoul. Takes her to the opera. And that's all lyric-wise. So, not particularly evocative, but I like how he's he's dusted off his uh, Spanish there. And, you know, it's no Fireman 451, but there you go. It's um, another song... Songwriting exercise, let's just uh, think about it that way. The artwork was done by Regina Newey, Doug's mum, who did it with the help from her friend Guy Mirabella, graphic designer, who went on to run a famous cafe in Mount Eliza. Saffron thinks the original artwork of their mother is sadly lost forever. I believe your mother, Regina Newey, did that artwork along with a mate called Guy Mirabella? Yeah, that's right. Yep. Yep. I th- I don't really know much about the visual arts. I think your mum designed it but, or and Guy did the illustration. She illustrated part. it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, she did, yeah. I suppose you probably don't remember how that came about. Oh, yeah. Um, I remember mum making that. That um, It was a single, wasn't it? A little small, a 45, yeah. Yeah, I think it was based on work she was doing at the time and um, Adam always sort of took the reins of choosing the visuals for the band, well, often anyway, and um, if something... He's, he's a pretty um, forthright person. If you like something, you just say, I want that, that's it, let's use that, and the band would go along with it and, um, yeah, it was cool. Guy Mirabella is um, a very close family friend. He's a designer that 
I think he did the cover for Footage Missing or one of his students collaborated with him for that. Um, but, yeah, he and Mum worked a lot together in the, in the sort of world of commercial art. So, yeah. Do you think it's worth me asking you what the, the picture represents? Or I know artists don't... Do you remember the discussion <laughs> what the bird figure represents or, or anything? Or Well, yeah, I do, actually. Tell us, tell us, if not It private. was something... No, that's okay. It was something she was working on um, that she, she and Dad had broken up for a year and she said it was an image of, our, of my dad, oh. which is an interesting, this very sort of sharp, sort of Saturnian, icy sort of figure. Um, they got back together and Dad wasn't really that person. But at the time that was what she said about the artwork, which was... <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> wow. Thank you for devol- yeah. Thank you for uh, letting us in that insight. That's fascinating. That's I thought okay. maybe it was representing the angular guitar riffs or something on, on Fireman 451, but, yeah, that's, it's always nice to hear the imputed meaning. I don't think the she real actually – I think the music happened before the artwork. I think it was artwork that Mum was just making anyway, and they felt that it suited their feel at the moment. So, yeah. Fireman 451? Yeah, great song. So, Michael, Fireman451, no secret about it. This is, (laughs) Doctor said he wrote this with the imagery of the novel Fahrenheit451 in his mind. I don't know if you've read that, Michael, but it's along the lines of the 1984 Brave New World thing, dystopian future where firefighters don't exist or they're modified. They go around and they burn everyone's books with, you know, flamethrowers because they don't have written word anymore they all sort of watch reality tv orgy type things so yeah what do you think of this song you you a fan oh yeah big fan and but never really knew or got into the lyrics much um it once again it never stood up like stood out even in this song just hearing him singing um I'm a fireman. Um, I don't put fires out. I start. I'm up. That's just all that stuck in my head. So it, it's never like really looking at a lyric sheet or having a focus on it. But always like the song. But as we are talking about the lyrics, I well, that was a good intro, John. And I'm really wanting to hear about from others that were big fans of this song and really mm. had an in-depth feel and understanding of the lyrics. But I'm not gonna have much more to say about them unless you've got some more in-depth or funny things or things that they talked the doctor talked about with the lyrics john well you've pulled out the greatest lyrics of all i'm a fireman no yeah. you don't understand i don't put fires out i start them up start em. and in the words of our mutual friend shane that's pretty fucking metal <laughs> that's a pretty cool image isn't it uh, it is it is yeah I don't know some of the lyrics I couldn't quite work out. And you look in through the sky, a focus on the weather's eye. I told you, told you mm. what you say to me. I wasn't quite clear about that, but um, yeah. Sorry, just going on there, that, that's the point. That's what I, I you, you can hear it very clearly coming out. So say when we're going back to their previous EP, we looked at all those songs, This Mood Has Passed, a lot of Shara Sparks, it just, nothing sticks out. That, mm. that sort of doctor song, as in clearly, this is so clear. You can hear, watched your house burn down. I'm a fireman. You don't understand. I don't put fires out. I start them up and you look through the sky. I focus on the weather's eye. It's so you can <laughs> hear it. And to burn your house down. So that just doesn't make sense and unless you really, really look at it's not fireman, fireman 451. And you really read into it what he's actually written the song about. But if you just hear it, you just go, what? Um, so, and I think this is why they were having the trouble. What is the, you know, uh, record companies and stuff trying to think about them. If somebody like me is confused, it wasn't that simple. There weren't like, there's a complexity in that, um, lyric writing as well as when we get in the music later too, that people, probably a lot of people didn't know how to take them and they were very still quirky and funny on stage like they are today. And yeah, so it's quite interesting. This is without doubt the first Doctor song that has really catchy lyrics, like that line, I told you, told you, told you what you say to me, mm. sticks in your in your head like an earworm more than anything on uh, mm. This Mood Has Passed. And the music itself is fantastic. It's just the dr- everything about it. The drums, it's sort of like really angular and the verses and everything sort of 
the snares on the three, it's not two, four, it's on the three, it sort of puts you off beat. And then it, by the time the chorus comes in, it sort of straightens up and it's just your standard chorus. But it's just, it's really catchy, this song, Michael. It is. And uh, did you have anything much more about the lyrics or should we just dive and keep going through into the music now? I was just going to ask if you had any idea why he drove a thousand miles to watch his best friend's house burn down. Was that in relation to his fireman duties or was that just something else? Anyway, but I don't think we're really going to get a good answer there. <laughs> but um, it's, it's look, I'm, whatever the inspiration, whatever the lyrics mean, it's just, um, you know, a link to a famous novel, but it's just the syncopation of the words with the music just goes really well together, um, even if they could just be placeholder lyrics. Um, but I suppose I've just got to read the novel again, <laughs> which I did in year 10, but I don't remember a lot about it. <laughs> And that is a good point. It does. Like that syncopated the, uh, how you sing the words, the singing and the, the, the rhythm with that. Yeah. The syncopation is just all fitting in. So it just works and comes together as a whole really, really, really well. So you can just see, as we were even talking, the previous songs that they were writing, fantastic musicianship. But this one, yeah, really getting there. And I mean, I remember like Coxie um, saying that him and Dr. At the time, they're still like that stage learning to write songs, but mm. they may not even realise it. And this is a thing when you are um, a musician or in a band and you have spent that time as a unit, which they had by then, like they're together. So, they're able to do that that thing with the snare on the third and whatever and Jack doing that with the bass to make it fit and Doctor just playing a few things, giving a gap for that bass is always popping out. Um, they did it really well. They were really, they were learning to write, and they were writing songs really, really well. Have you roughly worked out the verses? I think uh, E F sharp D sort of up, back down. E F sharp D. I don't know if you've worked it out. And then the chorus is it just? Yep. Well, I caught the chorus. It's I told you, told you, told you what you say to me. Yeah. That's shuffling down from E to D or something. I don't. Is the bass doing anything particularly interesting or? I was going to, like I did in one of the other songs we, we did, uh, when luck went out, I was going to do a pick up the bass and play along, but you can hear it anyway. There's no need for me to do it, but do, 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 Like he's just pretty much going from D to E kind of thing and going to the lower octave of the E, um, very sort of simplistic stuff, but it really pops out. Like however they've done when they were mixing these songs, especially this one, the the tone on the bass is very simplistic and doing its job being a bass sound. So when you've got all that uh, tinny, uh, sharp, arpeggiated chords, that sticks out. And same, once again, the trumpet in there with that different tone, you can hear everything really well. And same with the, with the drums and the snare and all that sort of stuff going on. But, um, yeah, it's... Quite sort of simplistic. It's sort of, it's fast, but it's not nothing too complex. And it's, yeah, jumpy and bumpy and fun. And, and he's, he probably, Doctor probably had that song in that way. And so Doug's coming along and this is how the rhythm's sort of going. And Jack must have just slotted in. And unless I'm wrong, Jack. Um, <laughs> however, if you put it together a different way. But yeah, you can see it fit, fits just, mm. he's just fitting in really well. There's a decent amount of reverb on the drums as well. Like you could think, I, I'm assuming it was at Timbertop still and not Power Plant or whatever it is in Carlton, but uh, definitely really sounds like it's recorded in a in a big room, even if it wasn't. So that, that's a good... And it it's pretty current sounding, really, the song, like just an indie sort of piece. It could be... An, I mean, you could probably put this in a Fove set list today, I think. It wouldn't sound too out of place. Yeah, you could. And it was definitely one of those right type of songs at that time for that sort of indie scene, grunge and bit kind of underground and all that kind of thing because it had its own sound and it was catchy enough but not sort of, I don't know, it just, it just fitted just me remembering the time of what the songs were going around. It had its own thing and it's going back to those, this mood has passed, that whole trumpet sound. Uh, yeah, Dr catchy with how he's singing and the melody all the way through do 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 you know noodling around coxie <laughs> doing that sort of thing which is great so following off from songs such as 
uh, When Luck Ran Out or Beautiful in Death, very similar, very like there's a sound, there's a unique sound kind of thing happening there. Michael, I've completely forgotten. Is is there trumpet in this song? Yeah. Now, this is an interesting thing. I'm going to put there. I've heard a live version of this song. I don't know if you ever have, John. Have you heard this song I have live? a few. A few times. Yeah, I think so. Tell me more about it. Okay. So, this is one thing. I'm just wondering whether Doctor thought it through or not. So, obviously, Doctor's a trumpet player. So, there's, there's, there's trumpet in it. And... Like it's uh, when he's singing the chorus, or not the chorus, that just says few two words, those two words or whatever. Told you, told you, told you, told you. And then he's playing that melody over it just in those little bits. So when you hear this song live, like I remember live on Triple J, I got a copy of it or whatever, there's no trumpet and it sounds so weird because Doctor's singing. And I don't know whether he thought that through, like if he's going to record a song and he's singing and he's playing the trumpet, well, when they can't pull it off live. But that's just something, um, yeah, to point out, I guess. As we'll discuss in future songs, a big motif or theme in Doctor's songs is usually water. So it's quite funny. One of these earlier songs is about the opposite element, fire. <laughs> mm. You know, that's pretty much all I've got to say. It's a great song, Michael. And you have to agree with Coxie that it's uh, quite superior <laughs> as a recorded piece anyway to Daughter Abroad. Oh, big time, big time. And I would love to hear if anyone else has got more in-depth things to say, whether it's lyrics or music. Related. Now, Michael, I suppose this is early in the podcast, so we need to set some ground levels of like what we like as music. Generally, are you a fan of cowbells like this song has in the start? <laughs> You're a fan of cowbells deployed correctly? Well, I am. I don't hear a lot of them in a lot of things that I listen to, or they never really notice them that jump out. I like them when they work well, like this song. It's a good song, and. He's making it fit well in it. So, I don't mind. I remember the whole going way back when, um, well, I suppose just only a few years before this sort of song or the Fives, early years of the Fives, when Guns N' Roses were using the whole cowbell thing and we thought, oh, wow, that's cool. And then first jamming and having um, a drummer, like, get a cowbell and we're playing around with it. But it never really stuck to future bands and things I was playing, having drummers with cowbells or listening to many bands with cowbells, but I'm fine with it. Are you fine with it? Yeah, generally. I mean, I never have to hear Honky Tonk Woman again, but yeah, I'm fine with it. I can't think at the moment if there's a lot of cowbell in future Fove songs. I'm thinking, is there someone footage missing? I can't remember. Anyway, deployed correctly and not over the top. It's it's a good a good compliment in your suite of percussive tricks but yeah it works out very well on this song i think like when i hear a songwriter talk about their song or or that kind of stuff i i, I really don't like it like i'd rather just oh. listen to the song you're boring because- the shit out of me and you're ruining your song before you i've even heard it let's hear now from fireman 451 and let this great track speak for itself Down. I'm a fireman 
Nobody recalls quite how shock came on board for both the second pressing of This Mood Is Past and the new distribution of Fireman 451. Coxie notes they were a prestigious indie, even for the foes at that time. Well, they approached you or just one of those things? I think we would have approached them because they were sort of starting to become a bit of a, you know, the indie label... We had a massive track record with our EP and single. They did the second pressing of that This Mood Has Passed, so... But I can't really remember the circumstances under which... um, Did Dave go to a lot of gigs and stuff? Was that something like... Shock Records had been set up in 1988 by David Williams, Frank Valvo and Andrew McGee. David Williams gives a sense of what shock was in 1990 and what sort of acts they were looking for. In that period, we were still slowly finding the feet, I guess. We were distributing labels such as Agogo. We distributed Waterfronts, um, Red Eye. So we had a number of uh, indie labels that we were already working with. We had, all, we did already have a, a few releases. Uh, I think the, the very first album that we released was uh, in a band called Intoxica. We'd released uh, Have a Nice Day and um, we, uh, I suppose that that early period we had um, Brady Bunch Lawnmower Massacre, there was a little group of sort of, uh, I don't know, maybe more guitar orientated uh, releases. And then we, um, we sort of, when we became a little more... Uh, focused on what we were doing at that point we i think we well we signed the underground lovers uh we had the glory box mm. the foves and prey tv they were all sort of around about the same time that we started signing uh, a number of uh, melbourne based uh, bands and then there were still a few people who were pretty much releasing records by themselves and you know taking them out to to record shops so it was, it was quite a, 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 an exciting time for independent artists. Sorry, I wouldn't say that there was particular styles, though obviously there were bands that could suit certain, you know, the uh, labels that um, uh, maybe someone would start a label w- with a particular sort of music in mind and then sign bands who had that style. But... I, I wouldn't say there were really strong movements. It was just everybody was trying lots of different things, I suppose. Within Shock, was it like Dave will look for the, the art rock type bands, another guy will look for the more folky, or did you have your own? What were you after? <laughs> Anything uh, that caught your interest? Yeah, I, I didn't. I, I mean, I look at, you know, you could say uh, there were, would be maybe a label like Summershine who had a particular interest in one style of music. Uh, obviously, uh, you had a lot of the, I don't know, what would you call it, the, the sort of indie music coming out of the UK with Creation and 4AD and labels like that. We weren't focused on trying to have just one style of music. So I guess uh, a little later on, we started to develop different labels to put different artists onto. So in the early days, we just had the Shock label, and then as things developed... We uh, had Shagpile, which was the heavier artists. Uh, we created a, a label called Hypnotized, which was where we would put someone like Screamfeeder. So we did try to develop, uh, I suppose, a label profiles later on. But earlier on, it was whatever we thought was interesting, we would put it on shop. I didn't know you did Shagpile. That's, that was Body Jar's label later on, wasn't it? Correct. 
Yep, they were, and Friends or Rom ended up on Shag Pole too. And I think Thousand Yard Stare had the hypnotised on some of the pressings on the back cover. I, yeah, I didn't know, didn't I? And there is something to be said for people who are interested in a style of music and the label's very focused on that one style of music, uh, as opposed to just uh, having a really wide range of music on on the label. So uh, I guess that's why we started to split the label up into these various different label brands, I guess you would call them. It was a really great time in Australian music, to be honest. Like There was so much great, great music around. Also, weirdly, everyone was doing very different types of music. It wasn't in these days, you wouldn't see all of those bands on the same bill, for example. Everyone was just doing their own thing. Oh, the band's never really had a manager, so to speak, have you? Oh, I've uh, actually had a Cal. few. We've actually oh, really? had several. We had Cal Mick Moore. Newton. No, Mick Newton was our manager. He was our agent, yeah. which is slightly different. Um, Jeff Tennant was definitely our manager. Oh, yeah. Um, the Joff. guy that stole your record, Joff right? No, no, that was Muttley. Oh, that Muttley. was um, Grant. Muttley manager. These fucking real names, Muttley. <laughs> yeah, well, Muttley was a legend at Menzies College, but then he worked... Um, uh, with Mark Burchett, who was managing the Huxton Creepers then, and Muttley had an office, and Muttley was managing the Mad Turks from Istanbul cool. and booking bands and whatnot. And, um, yeah, then he, then he sort of took over us managing us. Enter now manager Muttley, also known as Gra- He organised a nude show at Gaslight Records and some acoustic gigs for the group, renaming them Wild Beasts. I think he had something to do with the Huxton Creepers. Yeah. Um, and the Mad Turks. He was the, the Mad, Mad Turks, Turks manager. Of course. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you should speak yeah. to Charlie, Charlie Jenkins about that, yeah. The single was apparently out, but it wasn't in any of the shops. Those were the days when bands checked those things. Yeah, what were your memories of him as a manager? He'd only lasted for a few months before he yeah. took off with the, the record. <laughs> Disappeared. Um, yeah, look, look, I, look I, I don't really know a lot about him and probably didn't have a lot of kind of FaceTime. I know that... Um, so I'm not even sure where the connection came from um, either, to, to be honest. I have a feeling he he may have come from, I think his father was involved in in kind of in the sort of promotions or entertainment industry. So I think he sort of came from a, um, you know, a, a family that was maybe fairly well known. So whether he was kind of, Using that as his as his in to the industry, I'm not I'm not too sure. I just I remember that being mentioned. Did he come to many gigs, or you didn't really meet him much? Meet him a lot, to be honest. I know I know, I know he was living. Um, I think he was living in a sort of in a room above a pub somewhere, um, and and I think he kind of I think he liked the party. So so I think he would often be kind of you know there at the gigs and partying and then kicking on. Um, I don't remember a lot of the actual kind of work going on. I, I think it was, um, um, yeah, yeah. I, I seem to remember mostly, mostly the, um, you know, sort of partying afterwards and and um, uh, not not a lot much else, to be honest. <laughs> I don't think he's given. There was ever an account of why he why he absconded with the records. Was there any story? Yeah, for, look for all I for all I know, I think I think because yeah, the, the the single got um, got recorded, got pressed, and, and was and I think all that had to be done was dropped off at the distributor. So I think it was purely just get them from A to B, and then for some reason um, he had some kind of meltdown and just drove around with them in his car for weeks. Um, and and yeah, I, I again, I yeah heard the story of how the guys had to sort of, uh, you know, track him down and then confront him and, and, and wrestle these boxes of, um, of uh, freshly minted singles out of the boot of his car. It's quite, yeah, quite bizarre. There was, I, there was never really any discussion of what was behind that other than maybe just him just not having his shit together. And categorically, you weren't involved in it in any way, were you, Peter? There was no, <laughs> there's no conspiracy from the sound guy and him, no? 
I think he was quite 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 capable of uh, doing all that on his own, to be honest. The band knew Muttley lived upstairs at the Central Club in Richmond. They left hairs across the doorframe to check if he'd left the apartment. Uh, um, but we we had to chase him all over the state to to um, actually get the the singles for the for the launch. Mm. Um, so I'm, I'm yeah I'm wondering what's happened to him because he's uh, he could well well not be with us. Who knows? But he was very odd, very strange. Um, have, have literally haven't heard from him for thirty years probably. Been very weird. Mm. I'm trying to track him down, but he resists. Even Mark Burchard, I think, knew his brother or something. Anyway, I haven't been able to find him. What was his excuse when you found him at the nursery? He just said, oh, I'm busy, or did you have... He said oh, he just didn't want us to go around. He said, don't, please don't come with me. I'll get the singles out of the boot. And we just we were standing at the sort of the bonnet end of the car, and he went round and got the singles out of the boot and handed them over, and that was really good. We didn't really go into it anymore. It was just... It was just Weird, why he would be doing that? I think he was probably doing some um, doing some drugs, I assume, and was very paranoid at the time. So that that's what you that's what you would think in hindsight. He was he was um, doing doing a drug that was made, made him completely paranoid. Um, and who knows what he had in that in that boot? I would love to. I'd love to have been a bit braver and actually gone. Nah, bugger that. We're coming. We're going to have a look and see what it is because it could have been a dead body. Yeah, or a sawn off or something. Yeah, it could have just, who knows? Look, it was like we didn't want to know. We just wanted the the singles and let's get out of there. And I think it was, was it down in Red Hill or Main Ridge or something like that? Bonio, I think. Bonio, yeah. One of those, yeah. It was, it was, it was a full full um, detective uh, job <laughs> by us. <laughs> Very strange times. The Foves played support for the last ever Captain Coco show in October 1990. With the 45s finally in hand, the band finally launched the split A-side of the Tote a month later on 24 November 1990. They ended up following through with one of their departed manager's plans, as Doctor recalls. Well, I think he he had an idea to have a, the the punters come in and go into a lucky dip swimming pool. I think that was from memory what what happened at that at the start of that launch. So every punter walked in, spent a bit of time in the um. It wasn't actually had didn't have water. I think it had paper in it. But if they sort of um, scurried around in it, they could find some sort of lucky dip item. Triple J was kind to the Foves and many bands like them. Airplay for Daughter Abroad might not have been as sustained as their first EP, but the national broadcaster, together with Loyal Triple R, was still crucial if they were going to get interest to perform interstate and sell their releases. At this point, we'd like again to promote a great podcast called Just Ace by Danny Yao. It explores the Australian alternative music boom of the 1990s whatever the Berlin chair that means, in great depth, band by band, label by label. Here's a sample where Danny discusses the effect of Triple J going national in the early 1990s. Australia is a big country geographically, but the population is scattered. In the 80s and into the 90s, trying to get your message to everyone was not easy, especially if you were trying to broadcast anything. But Triple J could do it. Triple J could reach a lot of people. Because they didn't have advertisers, they were part of the state broadcaster ABC and they didn't run ads. And the ABC owned towers. It was only internal politics that had held it back so far. So in 1989, they started to broadcast outside of Sydney, first turning on in Melbourne, then all the other state capitals with regional Australia to follow. With a flick of a switch, Triple J were reaching more young Australian music fans than anyone else. They were reaching them with adventurous independent music programming and new radical ideas. And it was the same song all over the country at the same time. Getting played on Triple J meant suddenly music fans in several cities knew you, not just Sydney, and you could tour and make more money. Their first EP, 
this mood has passed, had received enough play on Triple J for them to secure a gig outside Victoria. The Fauves' first interstate gig was at the legendary Hopetown Hotel in Sydney on 12 July 1990, almost two years after the Mount Eliza footy gig. The AA side got some minor airplay on Triple J, but not as much as the first EP did. We don't want to prosecute the old Sydney-Melbourne rivalry and the ends to which Triple J was Sydney or Melbourne-centric. Suffice to say, the newly national radio broadcaster did play a part in the band's initial success. Just not for this one record. Dave O'Neill recounts his memories. But Sydney was the same. Sydney was hard. You know, you go and play some of those legendary venues like the Hopeton and the Annandale. And there was, again, there was a bit of a pop scene up there. You had a lot of indie sort of pop bands up there too. But um, yeah, it was, we were most, yeah, we were a Melbourne band, basically. You know, we never got to the foes. Because you know what happened? What, what happened in Melbourne was interesting was that Triple J wasn't here in the mid to late 80s. It wasn't, it must have arrived late 80s or, um, and it certainly didn't make an impact till the till the ninety maybe the late eighties, early nineties. Triple R All you had was Triple R okay. and PBS. And PBS, and you yeah. know what? And they were really supportive of bands like us and the Foes and the Fish John West Reject and the Killjoy. So we get our music played on Triple R by people like Steve White, who's still on Friday afternoons, because he loved that kind of indie pop sound and we would get played. I remember going in interviews with Bodan and stuff, and they were great. And so because of that you got a bit of a following because uh, of the Triple R thing. But once Triple J started, it became very Sydney-centric. And the foes were really lucky because they got airplay. They, you remember, they got, a bit of, they got a bit of Triple J traction, the foes, which gave them a bit of... Whereas we put out a single, um, the last single, Paul Weller, was Formerly Yours. Formerly Yours. Yeah, which is a great <laughs> pop song. And we sent that to Triple J... And they, I remember ringing up the guy who was a music programmer. He's still there, Richard Kingsmill. Is that his name? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and so back Legendary. in the back in the eighties, I would have rung him up in eighty eight or eighty nine. You could ring him just on the landline, and I said, "Oh, hey man, we're you know I'm from Captain Coca. We sent you a um a single." He goes, oh, I've listened to that." He goes, "That's not going to put. That's not going to go on Triple J." <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> so this one tool decided your future on Triple J. You know, which was really, really hurtful. But of course, he he was in Sydney. He didn't come and see us or any of the Melbourne bands. You know, so uh, it was great for the Foes to get some traction because you know. But you know, interesting about the Foes is that, as I said, they started off more poppy, but then they they kind of it, not not embraced the grunge thing, but they kind of incorporated a bit of that grunge vibe yep, into the music. Put a bottom end on the guitar. Yeah, yeah. Whereas we. We couldn't do that, and so we broke up. <laughs> the band's last gig of 1990 was at the MCG Hotel on Wellington Parade in East Melbourne. Gigs there were famous for starting at 1am. The venue itself has long since closed. Yet memories of the hotel and the collective consciousness are perhaps a little more sure-footed than songs like Daughter Abroad. More on that next episode, where we explore the release of The Scissors Within and the great debut album that was not to be. In fond memory of Muttley, hoping he got all the help he needed, here's disgraced but seminal rock and roller Chuck Berry recalling his first manager. I had a very bad experience with a manager the first five months of my career. He was flown in from New York uh, doing Maybelline, which is the first number. And at that time, I was working for a very small amount. And of this amount, I'd usually get handed about $50. They had no bonded ticket agents, just a little booth with my manager and the promoter. And they usually were friends. Uh, matter of fact, they seem to be businessmen because a lot of money is transacted that I didn't know about. What advice would you give to a young musician starting out in the business today? Okay, major in math, 
Then take up music, which is really half math. Then major in human nature. And then go right into business. See you soon for Oh, the Scissors Within EP.